Welcome to the Watch the Revolution show. Show for men and the people who love them. We'll discuss how men can find and embrace the healthiest versions of themselves. I am your host, Dr. Charles Corbru. What's going on, revolutionaries? We're back. And, you know, we're in the midst of our time. As we talk about at the beginning of the year, hopefully you have set your revolution and you are working, as we say, expeditiously toward achieving that goal. So as I say every week, if you need some help, you can always reach out on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram as well at What's Your Revolution, Twitter at WY Revolution, and Facebook, you can just hit me up on my personal page at Charles Corporal. As you know, each week we bring in outstanding guests, men of color who are making their way in the world, who are trying to change, right? Change themselves, change the communities, and change the world. And again, I am fortunate to have an amazing young man. And I want to put quotes around that. That's right. An amazing young man. Because too often we don't expose and highlight our young leaders. Those men who have come behind us and said, you know, we're going to take the charge. We're going to hold up the mantle. We're going to be revolutionary like you. But we still need your help. We still need your guidance. And so today I am joined by, as always... One of my good friends, Troy Glover. Troy Glover is one of the upcoming leaders here in New Orleans. He's done an amazing amount of work in Saint Rock, the St. Rock community here in New Orleans. A host of jobs. Right now, he is a public policy consultant and also one of the most influential leaders that we have around boys and men of color here in New Orleans. Troy Glover, welcome to the What's Your Revolution show. How you doing? I'm well, man. I appreciate you having me. It's been a minute. I've been trying to get on the show, but you know, <laughs> when, you, when you're up and coming, it, the spots are limited. So Come on, bro. You know, once Come on. <laughs> maybe in a couple of years, I'll get the spot reserved. No, no. I'm happy to be here, man. It's an honor. Yeah, no doubt. I'm appreciative of just the space and... You know, before I ask you the question, right, I know you've been pondering. Everybody's like, oh, Charles, you know, you don't ask that question. But it's interesting. You remember how we met, brother? Do I remember how we met? Was it in Oakland? No, nah, no. Nah, it, it wasn't in it Oakland. Was at, it was at Second Vine. That's, Second who, that's Vine exactly Vine what it was. That's exactly. For someone's get-together. Right. And you was there buying all the wine. <laughs> no, I don't know about all <laughs> that. <laughs> Ironically, it was a TFA event. It was a TFA <laughs> yeah, event. Yeah, it was a TFA event. And, you know, before we got on the show, we were just talking about TFA, uh, Teach for America, but it was a Teach for America event. <laughs> I had met this young lady, yeah. uh, and she invited me out to this event, and mm -hmm. you were there, always well-dressed. Nah. <laughs> If anybody knows that Troy Glover, this brother is well-dressed, suited up, always got a nice fly jacket on, doing his thing. But we just kind of started rapping, you know, yep. about what, what the event was about, just getting to know each other. And I found out your story a little bit, brother. So it's interesting how you know people meet yep, yep, and yep. you keep up relationships. And so I'm grateful for... You know, I don't even know how many years ago that was. Maybe two, three. Nah, I think it was longer. Yeah. I think it might have been longer. Yeah. So, you know, the relationships that we build with each other here in the city are also critical and crucial for our success. So, Troy, what's your revolution, brother? And I'm happy you, I knew this question was coming. And you know how when you're in the mirror and then you practice your answers and write it down and attempt it and you think, like, what what's the perfect response to what's your revolution and after practicing and practicing for hours i was like i don't i don't know if i want this space is created to come in be open be vulnerable and just say what you feel as best to believe your revolution and so i would simply say my revolution ties around three words and that's healing equity and leadership 
Um, I've been through a bunch, man, from the city, grew up in the city, been through a bunch and, and still um, am in the process of feeling out, figuring out what healing is for me. Um, based off a lot of trauma, based off a lot of relationships and equity, I've also experienced a lot of disparities and, and then, um, then the inequities within the city and working to work against that myself. And so in leadership, if we look around, man, um, in the nonprofit space, educational space, um, there's not a lot of people of color in leadership. And it means a whole bunch of me for a person of color being in leadership, especially from New Orleans, because um, it directly impacts the work that you do. Right. So my revolution and my life story, my life's mission is revolved around those three things, really healing, figuring out ways for me to heal, figure out, figuring out ways for um, other men and boys of color to heal, equity, making this city more equitable for people of color, um, especially from New Orleans, and leadership, creating a plaque form in a pipeline to build leadership within the city and so that's kind of where i'm at man and that's kind of kind of what sums up my revolution for me right no i love that i love that you were able to just couch it in those three words healing equity and leadership and before i unpack that you know everybody likes to know our people right they like to feel like they can reach out and touch you to yeah. know you a little bit more and so i asked this question if you were to have dinner with anyone dead or alive who would it be troy it's a good question. If I would have, if I was to have dinner with anyone dead or alive, it would probably be, um, and this is a simple answer, but it would probably be my dad. Really? Yeah, it would probably be my dad. Tell I, that story, brother. So, um, from New Orleans, grew up in a Calio project. My dad was killed on our porch, mm. front porch, when I was one. Um, sorry, somebody buddy. knocked on the door. They knew he was a chef. Knocked on the door and asked him for his paycheck, and he was like, "I don't have it. Like, I didn't have it. I have ten dollars on me." And so they shot him 10 times in front of the door. Mm -hmm. And so growing up um, with that absence just leaves a, bl a blank in a void. And so I would love to just have a conversation. People say I'm like them. People say I look like them. People say I talk like them. Right. Um, people say I act like them. And so just to have a conversation and be like, oh, what's up, pops? <laughs> yeah. yeah. How's it going, man? You know, yeah. and just to be able to process some of the stuff that. Um, I interact with and see as a black male in the city. So right. that would probably be the person I would want to have a conversation no with. No doubt. Yeah. Dear brother, I'm sorry to hear nah. about your loss, man. And I know as we grow up as children, you know, and having that father figure, having those role models and experiencing that trauma very early can have an impact on who we are, you know. But you've been resilient. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you've been very resilient. And that's... That's why I think that's why I wanted to have you on the show, not even knowing that story, you know, so I appreciate you being vulnerable enough to tell me that, you know, and, but the resilience that you show, I said at the beginning that you are one of our young leaders, right? And I want to couch that, right? I think of Ethan Ashley. I think of Royce Duplessis. I think of you, you know, as in, in that cadre of young leaders that we have, young men of color, young black men yeah. leaders who are, you know, the next revolutionaries out here. But tell me more of your story. So at one, you experience this tragedy, right? But then what comes about it? What comes out of it? Who is Troy Glover? And what's the what's the pieces, the tidbits of your story that you'd like to drop to us? Yeah, so I would say, and it would probably be the case for men and boys of color across the city, vulnerability is a hard space to be in. Mm. Like I, I've learned how to float around conversations and to give little insights and tidbits about Troy without actually going in depth and actually processing a lot of what it means to grow up without a father, what it means to grow up um, in poverty. And so I'm, I'm in a process of trying to figure out exactly what it looks like to be more vulnerable. And so my story can resonate mm -hmm. to many boys of colors across the city. So dad got killed when I was one. Um, 
had an older sister at the time, two years older. Once dad got killed, mom kind of spiraled out of control. She was like, I just lost my best friend. Right. Um, I got two kids. Um, me, one sister, older sister being three. And so she turned to um, alcohol and drugs mm. um, and really started to abuse alcohol and drugs um, throughout the majority of my life. So I moved around a whole bunch. I was doing a, a, a life mapping story and I reflected on how many elementary schools I went to in New Orleans. And I went to like six elementary what? schools. Yeah, I went to like six elementary schools, which I, at the time I didn't realize, like, Troy, you're switching schools. This might not be a good thing. <laughs> like, this is not okay to continue to switch schools. Um, but reflecting on it now and saying, like, man, I went to six different elementary schools as a child. Um, and there's not a lot of uh, sustainability in that. So, now we see that, you know, particularly if you think about the context of New Orleans, right, with our charter school movement, right, and s- schools closing and children have to go move potentially to school after school after yep. school because of that closing. Yep. What was that like for you, you know, if you can remember? It's interesting you say life mapping. The impact that you think it had going to six different elementary schools. Yeah, so I, it, I would tie back to the the conversation um, Dr. Sherrington at IOS was having when they mm-hmm. said kids are sad and not bad. Right. Um, in elementary, I acted out. And I didn't. I couldn't process at the time because of age and because of lack of knowledge, I could, and because I didn't have the space to process that. Throughout moving, I was sad. Right. And so when I didn't show up in school, when I didn't want to do my activity or my assignment, um, it was because I had a whole bunch of stuff happening at home that I didn't have the space to fully process that. And for that, I was punished mm. in school. Um, and that's kind of a microcosm of what it is today for a lot of black boys in schools who are sad because of home situations, who are sad because pops might be locked up or dead and um, don't really have the space to process that. And so that's part of when I say healing, <laughs> like right. that's, that's, that's generations. Exactly. And that's generation no. And so um, just figuring out how to take a lot of what happened during that time and how is that impacting me today mm. to work to create the best Troy possible, right. which I'm still in the process of doing. We all are. You know, um, my good friend Caleb Hill is a um, good jobs fellow at my my place of employment, uh, the place where I do hopefully my best work <laughs> instead of, you know, also inside the studio here. Caleb Hill uh, with Okuvu, you know, he talks about, you know, we are a masterpiece as well as a work in progress, right? And so that's interesting, yep. right? We are at, at our best, yep. right? But we're still working on being who we are. Let's fast forward a little bit. You get out of elementary school, you've you grown up, like you said, you, you grew up in the Calio, right? Mm-hmm. So for my people listening, right, what's the Calio? Just so people, everybody everybody around the world know, yeah. the Calio in New Orleans. Yeah. Let's, let's even put it in context, pre-Katrina. Yeah. So if to get some good context on what the Calio is, just go to Google and go Master P Hootie Hoo video. <laughs> I was in a video. Yeah, Wait, Yeah, I was in a video. I was in a video. Um, the Calio Project is where Master P grew up. A bunch of other rappers grew up. Um, would have been considered super dangerous, high poverty housing project uptown off of Claiborne, um, the Booger T. Washington Cooper um, housing projects. And so fast forward, um, grew up in a Cali, moved around a whole bunch because my mom and then Katrina happened. Right. The thing about New Orleans and Katrina is when Katrina happens, traditionally, if you're from New Orleans and you grew up in a project, you go to the project when a, when a hurricane happens because the project is made out of brick. Right. Vertical brick. Hard safe to come space, down. hopefully. Safe space, safe, right. space, safe space. So about 15, 20 of my family members go to the project um, when Katrina happened and um, say we're going to wait the storm out. 
So about two days after Katrina, um, we're in a project and we, we have radios and we hear on the radio, um, y'all got to get out. <laughs> like the, the, the water is continuing to rise. And, you know, we take it as a warning, um, take it as also an opportunity to just go around and see what stores are still open. I'm 15 at the time. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, the city is empty. Yeah. So this is a great opportunity. <laughs> Tell the story, bro. This, this is a great to, opportunity to right. see what when Dix is looking like. <laughs> and so. Um, right. I love to hear that. Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> and um, so about a week later, about a week or two later, we hear a man like, y'all really got to get out. This right. is mandatory. You need to leave. And um, I don't know. So the water didn't come in? The water was rising. It was okay. on the second floor. And right. so we continued to look out and see it rising. But we was like, it's going to subside. It's going to go down. Um, and so at the point we realized it was time to go, it was a little bit too late. Right. We had probably about eight um, kids with us. Me, 15, been oldest, had a bunch of younger cousins. So we like, we got to get to the Superdome. And this is what instinct kicks in, man. We literally use um, mattresses, refrigerators, doors to Shut float, swear, float from the Calio down Claiborne to the Superdome, man. Wow. Spent five days in the Superdome um, during Katrina and then ended up taking a bus from the Superdome to Dallas, stayed in Dallas and Houston for two years. It was like, I got to come back to the city. I love the city. Missed the city. Came back to the city um, and finished high school at the best high school in the city, McDonald 35. Oh, tell a story, bro. Yeah. Yo, yo, pull back for a minute, bro. Right. Oh, pull back. Like, nobody on my show, right? And I've been doing this for two years. Nobody has told this story, right, of floating, right? Yeah. You got to save your family, yeah. right? And I can't swim. Oh, Lord, right? <laughs> and I can't and so swim. You're, you're in several feet of water. Yep. Right? Mattresses. Water to my neck. Right. Mattresses, yep. Refrigerators, no lie. right? You, you, you said it. Survival instincts kick in. Yeah, right? we're fifteen years mm-hmm. out, fourteen years out this year, mm-hmm. fourteen years out. What does that still do for you? Do you still have those images of? I had to do this so to it's survive. Hard. It's, it's hard for me to visit the Calio. I miss the Calio and I love the Calio. My auntie still stay in the Calio, but it's hard for me to go back to the Calio. It's even hard driving down Claiborne right. for me sometimes because, like, I think. Troy, we was, and I, I didn't realize until now, like, damn, you could have died. Right. <laughs> you were literally floating to the Superdome and you could have died. And so it's hard for me to go back and drive down Claiborne, visit the Calio. Um, it's hard to even share those stories with my cousins right. who were there with me to say, like, we barely made it <laughs> to the Superdome, had to float if I'd have slipped off the mattress and right. landed what do you in the do? puddle. You can't swim. I can't swim. Then what that means? And so um, I think it's still. That's part of the healing, though. Right. Yeah, there that's, you go. Exactly. That's part of the healing. That's part of that's the healing. That's part of the figuring out, like, Troy, go, go, actually go walk down Claiborne. Right. Go back to the project and stare that down and say, like, you almost had me. But you didn't. But you didn't. Right. And so and look figuring at me now. out how to look at use, me now. yeah, how to look, in, look that into the eye and say, like, that's part of your story, bro. That's right. part of your story. The fact that you had to float to the Superdome, the fact that you spent five days in the Superdome, um, struggled in the Superdome, watched a whole bunch of craziness in the craziness. Superdome. Right, we want to speak of unspeakable. A whole bunch of craziness in the Superdome, and still you here. Right. And so that's part of that healing process for me. Man, no, I appreciate you. Man, yeah. thank you so much for telling that story. And because we don't often still remember that first, and we're 14 years out, but those first hands account of a young man doing a pivotal period, a pivotal period in his life. You were adolescent. Yeah. Right? You know, for my, my people out there that know brain development, right? The exposure to trauma and how that handles handles us, right? And we have to we have to figure out how to come out of that. Yeah. Right. And particularly then, right, the being in a new place, being in Dallas and then saying, I wanna come home. 
and New Orleans is different. Yeah. Right. And yeah. Dallas and Houston was horrible. <laughs> I, look, I, I still hate Dallas and Houston to this day because of my experience with right. Katrina. Yeah, I went to Dallas and Houston, man. Went to high school. It was hard for them to get used to New Orleans people. Right. It was hard right. for us to get the, used to Dallas and different. Houston people. And so it was a clash. It was right. tension. You bring in these gumbo eating, <laughs> crawfish sucking, <laughs> accent having people from New Orleans. Want to stay Orleans. out all night, all night wanna long. I want to take my drink with me, huh, bro? And then like, say baby. And I, <laughs> you yeah, know? Right, and exactly. So, say um, baby. That's... <laughs> And so that was tension too, man. But that's also part of the process too. Right. Let's move the conversation a little bit, right? And so again, thank you for sharing that. That healing process moves into, you know, I'm gonna circumvent the equity for a, a second. Moves into the leadership, mm -hmm. right? You know, 2005, you're 15 years old. Yeah. 2019, right? Yep. 29, 30. 28. 28. I'll be 29 in July. Man. I'm getting up there, man. <laughs> Come on, bro. Bones cracking. Man, I don't want to hear that, bro. 48 next month, <laughs> right? I don't want to hear that. But like I said, you know, you are one of our anointed ones. And I know, right, when I say that, right, you're like, mm, I don't want, I want you to lean into this for a second, right? What does that feel like, you know, at this age for you, knowing that story that you just told us? That now at 28, 29, right, coming impending 30, you are one of New Orleans' anointed leaders. People look for you, right? How does that feel for you knowing from where you've come from and now you sit into this space? Pressure and opportunity. Yeah. Pressure because I have the weight of the city on my back. Mm. What does that this, mean? This tell, is tell me more. This is personal. Sin and success and sin equity for this city and being, a, being able to create a pipeline for leadership specifically for people of color from this city who come from the Calio, who come from the St. Bernard. That's personal for me because every program um, that you employed on people of color, I experienced it. Right. Um, poverty initiatives that you employed on people of color in the city, I experienced it. All those things um, I experienced. And so it's personal for me, the weight that I feel and the love I have for the city. People say it's, and I always say, to be able to experience New Orleans and still love New Orleans the same is a true blessing and a curse. Mm. Mm. Say that again. Because to be able to experience New Orleans and love New Orleans the same is a true blessing. It curse. is. New Orleans has done a whole bunch of horrible stuff. Horrible. To me. Right. To people I know, to family, to friends. New Orleans has also been one of the biggest blessings in my life. Mm. And I love this city to death. Right. And so there's pressure in being from New Orleans and wanting to work and change New Orleans, especially with the changing environment. Right. Especially with the changing environment. This city is different. It's not... We don't value and put the expertise that it is and the experience of growing up in New Orleans as we should. Right. Especially when a lot of the work that we do impact and directly serve people from New Orleans. Who have been here. Who decided. Who've been here. Right. Who decided to say that there was no other place in the world that yep. I wanted to be. I wanted to come back. Yep. And it's so interesting. I want to pull something that you know both you and i know very well your experience working you know you're the president you were the president of the st rock community yeah right uh neighborhood association mm -hmm. right young man mm -hmm. right again you're the president of the neighborhood association At 25 right youngest president of the st rock neighborhood right. association ever and so think about that right you're saying that the city is changing and st rock has changed yep right what was that like leading a neighborhood right that has really been specifically for our people right for new orleanians and seeing people from outside of New Orleans come in and begin to, I don't want to see a road, but change the the face yep. 
of St. Rock. Yeah, so I, I see that influx of people coming in at the same way as I see privilege and white privilege. White privilege isn't bad because white folks have it, right? It's bad because people of color don't. Mm. And so story, if privilege was equitable, then there wouldn't be a conversation and it won't be an advantage. It wouldn't be an advantage. And it's the same I see as people coming in. Diversity in itself is a great thing. And we welcome all diversity. We want um, the neighborhood growing. We want economic development. The problem is when it isn't represented or when people of color don't get the benefit from it. And that was, that was exactly what was happening in St. Rock. And so being a president of the Neighborhood Association, I had to figure out how to incorporate current longstanding black folks who don't want to own a home, who just owe black folks who love renting because that's what they can afford right. and accommodate that what new gentrifiers coming in wanting to give back and help the neighborhood. Um, and so what I, what I tried to do was make it relational. Mm and get people to understand like these are your neighbors one one cultural thing about new orleans is like we love our neighbors we sit on the porch we speak to you and we yeah, offer you say you baby how you feel bro. how you feel how we you feel come to the bro. House on monday for some red yeah beans. no doubt and so i had to um get people to understand that that's part of who we are and right. if you want to come in on this space that doesn't belong to you you need to be culturally competent enough right. to understand that. Exactly. And exactly. so that was, it's, a, it's, it's a tension, and it will forever be a tension, right. but that's part of the process, man. Right, and good leadership. Good leadership needs to stand up and say, these are the things that yep. our community values, right? You may be bringing something different, and we want to we understand that, right? Yep. But we also want you to understand this is the St. Rock community, yeah. right? Long-standing residents, yeah, right? Rich in culture. Culture, history. History. Everything. Everything. And yeah. so it, that gets back to the middle piece, right, that we talk about equity, right, mm -hmm. and culturally responsive, yeah. right? Culturally responsive policy because we have all these different apps now where people can talk about what's going on in the neighborhood. Yeah. And oftentimes, well, there are five young black boys standing on my community, yeah. standing on my corner, right? That next and door it bothers, app. Right, the next door app. <laughs> yeah. it, it, exactly, right? Without understanding this corner, right? is the opportunity for them, yep. right, to congregate together and just have some space, yep. right? You don't have to stereotype all your, because they stand on the corner and they sell on drugs, yep. right? Me and my boys used to stand on the corner mm -hmm. all the time. Millionaire, right, yep. PhD, yep. all of us doing amazing things. But we stood on the corner because yep. we wanted to hang out. That was our thing. And the difference in cultures is black folks, white folks come in and pay for space. Black folks don't pay for space, Black folks, the corner is their space, right? And so exactly. that's free space to have, just right. to be, and just to be, be present, and just to conversate those things. And we're still missing on that piece, you know. And 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 that's the thing. And I think that if you think about your leadership, what are some of the challenges that you face, right? Being this young leader who's trying to push equity, trying to push leadership. What are some of the challenges you face really getting your policies yeah. out? Your, you know, the opportunity just to push your agenda. Yeah. So two things. One, um, since I'm from New Orleans. And since I've experienced a bunch of the inequities, I care about so many different issues. And so that reflects in my work experience. I've worked at LCCR pushing policy right. around juvenile justice, was on a team to help raise the age, which means 17-year-olds won't be incarcerated and go to adult jail where right. they've been harmed, raped, et cetera. That was me on that team to help push that policy. Um, from there, I did stuff statewide to do um, work around Medicaid expansion because I know that everyone deserves to be able to go to the hospital. Right, exactly. Even if, it can, even if you can't afford it. Um, and from that, I'm working with making connections just to build around health and masculinity um, for men and boys of color in St. Rock, all issues that I care about. Right. And so what's been a problem for me is people will say, Troy, 
You've been in criminal justice. You've been in education equity reform. You've been in healthcare reform, but you're not an expert on anything. Sometimes being a generalist, right? <laughs> you know, is not bad. Not bad. It's a, it's a good thing. And and that's one of the pushbacks. They say, Troy, I know that you care. I know that you're passionate. I see the impacts and the effects you've made across the city and state. But like you're not an expert on any of these things. And so it's hard for me to promote or create a space for leadership for you when you've touched so many areas. And the second thing is, the second thing is, and you can touch on it too, being from New Orleans, being black and from New Orleans has become a crutch. Mm. Why? Because a lot of times when looking at leadership, even considering a nonprofit space, the gatekeepers in those spaces are white and not from New Orleans. And so, a lot of times when it comes to promoting and going up that social mobility um, ladder, it's relational. It and is so relational. even when considering TFA, if someone did TFA and comes from the same state you came from, it's easy to right. say, come in, come right. help do this good work in New Orleans. Because you know each other. Because you, you, know, know, you know the philosophy. The same background, same philosophy, right. same it, ideology, right. same stories. Also, like, they know if Troy comes to an organization, and I probably shouldn't say this because <laughs> as I'm a consultant right now, <laughs> it may be transitioning and this might not help. Right. They know that if Troy comes in and when Troy comes in, there's a racial equity lens has to be that's inherent in me. Right. And so I can't not say something. You have to. And, and that's, you know, this is the What's Your Revolution show, right? <laughs> and so you do have to be revolutionary. But you're right. And, and that is interesting as we think through how do we show up in space and how do we create avenues where we're in the leadership positions. It's it's hard. Right. It's hard to move up in space. Absolutely. Right. I think about our leaders. I think about Royce. I think about Jason Williams. Yep. Right. Um, but I can't, you know, I think about Ethan, but I can't, you know. No. Right. I think about our state reps, yep. you know, the smattering of state reps that we have that are black and male. Mm -hmm. But there's but pivotal decision makers. Yep. Right. That are that are men of color that are I. I don't know. Yeah. Right. And I also know that they are barriers. Yeah in place mm -hmm. wait a minute right <laughs> wait a minute i feel a little bit more comfortable with x person than yep. this revolutionary he's gonna bring this revolutionary spirit he wants to talk about racial equity he yep. wants to talk about this from a gendered lens he wants to really unearth those things and so yep. it scares some people right mm -hmm. when, and when you do have privilege troy as you know you can say you know what this sounds great yeah but i'm gonna go back to my office i'm gonna do what i've always done right I'm gonna say I checked the box, I brought Dr. Corper in, I brought Troy Glover in, and we are golden, and we're gonna move on. Or, or you will hire someone in a non-leadership role, coordinator, manager, but mm -hmm. don't, no one's on the executive leadership team. Right. And, and what I always tell young folks when I'm doing, I'm doing a training with young folks is I'm like, don't, don't sign up for these fellowships and these boards um, and these councils that's getting your expertise and your knowledge without compensating you. Right. And so often what happens is we create spaces for people of color, young people of color, old people of color to sit in on some council, some leadership council. And not that it's not important. Board representation is super important. Super important. I'm saying it's even more important to make sure people can feed their family. Right. And to make sure that you have a living wage. <laughs> right. And to make sure that you're compensated because the counterpart is. And so one of the things I'm trying to pilot right now um, is trying to work and partner with foundations because the city is so heavenly dependent on foundation, foundation. dollars. Thank to, you. Thank you, Kellogg Foundation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Which we love. We, yeah, we thank do. Thank you, Kellogg we Foundation, do. as a cohort two fellow, <laughs> which I love. Thank you, Kellogg. <laughs> yes. Um, to really 
make it mandatory for any nonprofit that receives any philanthropic dollars and you're the direct population that you serve. So your impact population is people of color and people of color from the city. It needs to be mandatory for you to have a person of color on your executive leadership right. team in order for you to receive any dollars. That's a policy shift there, That's brother. a policy shift, and it's hard. Look, look, let me say that again. That's a policy shift, dear it's brother. It's a policy shift, yeah. man. Yeah. But you it's know. so crucial. So crucial. It's so crucial. To the work. And that is, you know, part of being a funder. And uh, eventually, and I put that out there in the world, that eventually I want to get to that space, right, of being a funder. Yeah. Right? Uh, and thankful for my position right now at Camelback Ventures is that we are funders, right? Yep. And so we get to work with entrepreneurs, women and entrepreneurs of color. So we get to help them through this phase. But that's a policy shift. And we also need people of color in those decision-making rooms and foundations to say, Absolutely. this is why that policy works. Absolutely. You know, um, you know, we keep coming back to this, this theme about black men in New Orleans. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if people see you and me on the street, they're just gonna say black men are not struggling, right? You know what I'm saying? You always dress well. You know me, right? They got they got a still called Burlington Co-Factory. <laughs> where he gets some nice slacks and pants for like $10. Right, right. But underneath it all, Troy, our men are struggling here in the world. No doubt. Yeah, you know, there's still a 48% unemployment rate for men of color, for black men in this city, right? That's an atrocity. Yep. You know, what do we need to do to stymie that number, right? Yeah. To quell, to give black men opportunities in this city that they haven't had maybe even for centuries. Yeah, so one thing I would say is that executive leadership piece. Mm -hmm. If we have um, people in leadership, folks in leadership who can resonate with stories, resonate with backgrounds, cultural competency, then you are more likely to hire. Two, we need to really change the qualifications and how we see being qualified for a position. Unpack that. Because <laughs> that's it. That's it. Yeah. So a lot of times we have 10 years of experience mm. um, or need a master's degree and something. Not that those things are important, but starting to realize and include and account for racial equity. Right. And how race has played a role into what qualifications look like, um, how relationships play a role into what qualifications look like, and really take into account um, person people's personal and professional experience outside the traditional personal and professional experience to be able to promote people to leadership right. and give people a living wage. You can't have a job and keep a job when you're worrying about thirty other things at the house. You can't. You can't have a you job. Can't be, and keep, you can't you be can't, your most you effective can't, no. self. Right. You cannot. Right. And we don't account for those things. We say we're gonna give somebody a job paying eight dollars an hour. Nine dollars an hour, and work to train them up. Not accounting for um, the fact that we're still trying to finish school. Right. Um, not accounting for the fact that um, we still um, may have kids that need to go to um, childcare, which is childcare super expensive. Right. And that's why I'm super appreciative and happy about the early education um, packages that's coming through and just changing the narrative around what it looks like for people in the state to be able to afford quality childcare. So yeah. I would say a bunch of those things, man. Right. No, it it has to ha it has to happen. You know, as I think about your answer and I think about it, you know, as I was preparing for our interview, uh Nas came on. Right? Remember if I rule the world? Yeah. Yeah. On my playlist. I yeah. Love <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And so here's your opportunity, Troy, right? Right? You had the opportunity to rule the world. You had the opportunity to let's even contextualize. You had the opportunity to rule New Orleans. What would you do for black men? Mm. <laughs> Um, I would start by, one, creating spaces. Just creating even more spaces for black men to be able to process and talk and figure out where they want to be, 
often our counterparts have the opportunity to uh, move from surviving to thriving right easily and so we depict and create lanes for black black men and boys to go toward i want black men and boys to be able to have the creative space in their brains to think i can literally if all these barriers were, were removed I can be what I want to be. And I'm not saying be a doctor or a lawyer. I'm saying if you want to be the best barber possible, I want to create that space and give you the opportunities and a platform to go be the best barber you want to be. Right. If you're saying, I want to be the best chef I can be or the best person in a nonprofit space, I want to be executive director. What does that mean to be executive director? Mm -hmm. I just want black men and boys of color to be able to have the avenue and the space to move freely without the barriers um, of racism without the barriers of stereotyping without the barriers of poverty and say like I, ha- I have that opportunity to really grow and be what I want to be right and right. that's important to me right so breaking down those barriers I'm still I'm gonna push I'm gonna push a little bit more mm-hmm. right you got you rule right so breaking down those barriers what you could change policy you could create this what would you yep. create yep so I would say um no discrimination around hiring. Um, I'm removing all barriers toward hiring, whether formally incarcerated or not. Wow, I'm, yeah, there you go. That's what I want to hear. That's exactly <laughs> yeah. it right yeah, there. We're hiring, no matter right. what. I, one policy would be requiring um, men and boys, African-American, um, people of color to be in executive leadership. In any, If I was over the city, any organization that receives city funding would re- be required to have um, executive leadership, someone from a, minute, a person of color in their executive leadership team. would be another policy that I'm changing. Um, it would be some more stuff around the criminal justice system. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, um, yeah, just second chances. If you this city over-incarcerates um, men and boys of color. And so just figuring out how to change policies and that impact men and boys of color. And so that would be another thing right. I would want to address. So it's a host of things, education, healthcare, workforce development, yep. uh, all those different things. Properly yeah. funding at the schools. That there you go. There's a disproportionate These are things that, disparity in funding around schools. Right. And so ensuring that our kids can go to a great, high-quality school, um, just like other kids are able to go to. Right, right. No, I appreciate that, that dear brother. You know, I keep looking, I keep thinking, I'm like, where was I at 27? Right, 28. What was I doing? I was still, I was green. I was, you know, green, chasing out the women. Right, right. That's what I was doing. I wasn't thinking about being a leader. Right. But you have really positioned yourself in this space. Right. 28. I wish I wish I could go back the last 20 years and know what I know now. Right. You got that. Right. You've got that opportunity. What do our young leaders need in this city? And what do our young leaders need across the country to really be able to excel, you know, to be in a space like you, right? To think about your runway right now, right, is so vast. You have that opportunity. What would you say to other young leaders who may have, don't have the runway or have the runway, you know, that you may have? What would you, what would the advice would you give to them? I would say that one, we need the opportunity to fail. So I've... <laughs> I'm here now, and I don't personally think that I'm super successful or that I've accomplished. I've accomplished some stuff, but I haven't accomplished enough. I've also failed a lot, and in those failures, I had to pay for it. I had to suffer and pay for for the mistakes I made professionally. I am still suffering and paying for a lot of mistakes I made professionally, but I didn't have the opportunity to fail. And so I would love to create a space where um, young men and boys of color can have the opportunity to fail because when you when there's a safety net you're willing to try more and you're willing to go toward that idea that you people telling you not to go toward 
Um, you're willing to invest in things that you may not be willing to invest in because you're not afraid to fail. And I think failure keeps us at a place. I would also say um, mentors and role models. We need to see black men who are more than just at least rappers. Right. We need to see black men who are leading in education. And we need to see more black men who are leading in the non-profit space, philanthropic space, criminal justice space, to be able to point and say, I want to be that when I grow up. Um, I want to be that when I grow up. And so um, those two things are really, really important to me. But just keeping in mind, like, you, you're not going to be perfect in this. You've, mm. you've been through a lot. Right. I've been through a lot. And so as you're navigating this space, be vulnerable, be open, but don't ever lose yourself. Yeah, no doubt. I, I love that. One of the things, uh, one of the reasons why I moved into Camelback with our wonderful CEO, Aaron Walker, is that one of our mantras is to be unafraid. Of failure, and many of our young men don't get that opportunity, yeah. right, to fail forward, right? Yep. Their failures, uh, you know, at at worst means the end of their life, mm -hmm. right? And then at least means that there's some rep—not reparation, but there's some repercussion, yep. right? That's going to stymie their growth, right? Yeah. We are, you know, criminalized even at, even at the smallest levels, and so being able to have that opportunity to fail forward and to have mentorship to say you know what yes you failed but this is the way that this is the way forward yeah. i think that is critical Troy, uh, you know our time always runs short this is the best always the best hour of my week but you have been a huge proponent of the me too movement you have stood out right how do you know men like us right you know, show other men that we have a role in fighting the atrocities against so many people, right? We think about Me Too, and it always tends to flow to women, right? But we think about the LGBTQIA population, right? And their experiences with Me Too. How do you, as a leader and a man of color, show other men, right, that we have to be in this fight as well? Yep, one, um, thinking about the stigma that's around that conversation when it comes to the Me Too movement and when it comes to how we view masculinity as black men and boys. So really creating a space and, and, and getting folks at a table to discuss what does that mean. So what does it mean for to have consent? What does it mean for a friend of yours to be part of the LGBTQ community? And what does, like all the stigmas around that and really being pressed upon men and boys of color from a child, like toughen up, don't cry. Um, you can't cry. All those things that create a cycle of um, really not being aware and conscious enough of your neighbor. And so um, one of my favorite um, Bible verses is love your neighbor as you love yourself. And so just really taking that into this and saying, like, open your mind and your heart up enough to be able to see and understand your neighbor as a whole. As a whole. Fully who they are. Right. Without any preconceived notions. Be able to ask questions in a real meaningful way, but also be willing to learn and to grow and to challenge yourself on how you think. I think that's important to growing any movement. Right, exactly, because I often think that we're asking for equity when it comes to us, right? But we're not showing equity. Yep. You know, we're not taking the time we to, to fight for other people. And that's a learned behavior. That is a learned behavior, right? It's interesting. I did a show uh, a couple of months ago where we talked about how black men were the white men to black women, mm. right? Because we were, even though the world seems to be against us, we're still experiencing privilege. Yep. Foundations are funding initiatives around Absolutely. boys and men of color, yep. right? Everybody's talking about... Right, exactly. Um, 
so that privilege that we still have, mm -hmm. right, to understand other people, to understand the atrocities that we may have, right, that we may have perpetrated against women and people, yep. right? So you, th you think about that men perpetrate the lion's share of atrocities against people. Yep. Right? Definitely. Against people. 100%. Right. And then we think about it. We see things. We have an opportunity, you know, when we see things to call them out. Right? One. And then two, be ready to be called out. Yep. Right? And that's a hurtful thing. Mm -hmm. Right? For us, because many of us, our egos are huge. Yep. I'm not wrong. Mm -hmm. I was. I, I treated. I treated her respectfully. Yep. Or well, you're doing the work, and so you think you're good. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Or you're in the work. Yeah. I'm this person, right? I would never do that. Yeah. Well, you might. You might be the biggest perpetrator. <laughs> right. My all. mission and value say this in my organization, so I can't be doing anything right. wrong. Right. Exactly. And so we have an opportunity, you know, one to be able to say, you know what, I made a mistake. Yeah. Right. And then to be unafraid of saying, you know what, hey, brother. That probably wasn't the best behavior in that moment. Absolutely. Right? And you have done a, a wonderful job. I know that we've had conversations like, hey, bro, that just wasn't cool. Yep. Right. You know, and how do we then continue to, I want to say, mimic this behavior and then put it out there? Like, this is the behavior that black men have to show, particularly to the people that, you know, are being, you know, marginalized, yeah. oppressed. Um, so it's, it's always interesting that I bring this up because I see it. I'm like, wow, how do I how do I say like, hey, I'm a little I'm a little unnerved by that behavior. Yeah. Right. Or someone to say, hey, well, you know, corporal, you know, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. And Absolutely. to be able to take it as well. Um, the show is always about finding and embracing the healthiest version of yourself. Well, we started out you talking about healing mm -hmm. and equity and leadership. What tips would you give? What strategies would you give to men? you know, to find and embrace the healthiest version of themselves. Go back and think, how did you become who you are today? Mm. And if that, there may be a hurtful process and it may be a painful process, but who your past um, really, really shows who you are today. And so for me, that means being able to go back and walk through the Calio. For me, that means right. being able to have a conversation with my mama when for the majority of my life, she's been on drugs and uh, she's been abusing drugs and alcohol, but understanding the pain um, that comes with her life too. And so just being able to really confront your past, even if it's painful, being able to process and talk about it in a healthy way. I, I, I go to therapy. Right. <laughs> like I go Tell to therapy story, once brother. a week right. because I need a space where I can just talk and process the pressures, the hurt, the conversation, the communication um, that's happening on a weekly basis that I may not be able to process. And right. so just figuring out what it means for you, and it don't have to be therapy, but figure, figuring out a space for you to be able to let go. And to just be be you and to just be without the peer pressures from your friends, without work, without the external pressures for being a black male and a white America. Um, just being able to process and be you and right. be able to understand. And I think that's super important to the health of any human, but especially the health of men and boys of color who have been through a whole bunch and who this society treats and marginalize and misplace. It's important to be able to find a space for you to process, and that's why I'm still in that journey. Yeah, I'm no, still. we all we. If you're doing the work, you should be. Yep. What I heard was find a, a find a comfortable yet vulnerable space to revisit your trauma. Absolutely. Right, and that may be in therapy. Yeah. Right. That may be in a group with. Yep. You know what? Uh, people with the hashtag "You Good Man." Yep. Right. Shout out to my boy, uh, Philip Roundtree, and you know having that space to revisit. 
and to say, you know what, I can move forward. Yeah. But if you don't revisit the trauma, right, and if you don't release the trauma, you're gonna hold, right? I, we go back, right? You releasing that I had to float to the Superdome, yeah. right? And like you said, being able to walk in the Calio, that's gonna be that's gonna be that's gonna be part of your revolution. Yeah. 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 You know. So I appreciate it, brother. I appreciate the time. I appreciate, appreciate you, you know, me, man. you know, just the openness and honesty that it is for you to show up as, as I said, one of our anointed young leaders here in New Orleans, right? And so I'm anxious and excited to see your trajectory and how you lead this city moving forward. Congratulations to you on being selected part of a WK Kellogg Community Leadership Absolutely. Fellowship Class 2. I am a Class 1 alumni. Yeah, we so got a great group. We yeah, man. Shout out to the whole um, fellowship cohort too. Everybody, Pat, Lisa, um, Kalala, Kalita, everybody, the whole team. We got a great team, man. And shout out to Kellogg too. Yeah, no doubt. They are, they are amazing. They are amazing people and they have been able to, you know, give me the watershed, you know, moments of my life over the last four mm. years and so the kellogg the kellogg fellowship allows me to do this yeah. right it, it was the impetus for me to say i have an opportunity to be a voice to right to have a platform um and to use this platform to help men find and embrace the healthiest versions of themselves and particularly us man, yeah. people that look like you and me right because i went looking <laughs> i went looking for something like this and it wasn't there. And if you think about this entrepreneurial spirit that we have, when you can solve a problem, mm. right? And that was my problem. I went looking for something like this and it wasn't there. So I was like, somebody else might be looking for this. So let's create that, That's right? Good. So I wish you well as you embark on this journey of being a Kellogg Fellow. So, you know, 18 months from now with the ending and you can say, this was the watershed, what are you gonna do? Right, and maybe we'll have you back on. Yep, right. Definitely. To say, you Be know, looking out. I got some stuff in the pipeline, man. I'm really trying to change the narratives around how we see men and boys of color in this city, how we see leadership in this city, and how we change policy in this city in an um, equitable way. So, yeah. be looking out for me, man. I got some exciting stuff coming up. Well, we're excited, man. Look, thank you for listening to the What's Your Revolution show. We want to thank everyone who listens each week and making sure that you are on your revolution. Make sure you check us out every week on WHIV 102.3 at 10 a.m on Thursdays, right? And make sure that you can always, always be able to answer the most thought-provoking question of your life. What's your revolution, everyone? Have a great week. We'll talk to you soon. Peace. Brothers and sisters.